and welcome back to the Feedgrass for Good podcast, brought to you by Hustler Equipment, the world's most innovative livestock feeding equipment. Each episode, we talk with a different sustainable farmer or expert in sustainable farming. This is our sixth episode, and today we're talking with Joe Howard, director of Chantenay Carrot and Livestock Enterprises at Howard Farms in Nottinghamshire County, England. Joe's family has been farming in England since 1888, and during the last two decades of the 20th century, Howard Farms was focused on intensive and irrigation crop farming. But then the farm's soil began to deteriorate and yields fell off a cliff. So in 2003, Joe's father Max introduced cattle to the farm, hoping that a return to a mixed farming approach would improve the soil quality and balance. And the results were as you might expect. Joe Howard took over the livestock enterprise in 2016 and is very generous with his time explaining, among other things, how genetic selection has been important for the success of the operation and demonstrates how profitability is such a vital part of what makes a farm actually sustainable. Yeah, I'm Joe Howard. Uh, we're farming in um, so the North Midlands, South Yorkshire border. We're a family-based partnership, um, historically all arable production. Um, but over the past uh, what, no, two decades, we've moved back into livestock um, we produce a lot of carrots. We are the UK's largest producer of Chantony carrots. Um, and yeah, we're building a livestock system that integrates into that vegetable production for soil health and sustainability. We are historically arable farmers that have probably overproduced on the veg production side and, and therefore putting the livestock back into the rotation. It's about soil health. And, and trying to make a system that's far more sustainable. Um, so grass in the rotation, and then, yeah, the winter foragers being the fodder beets and, and a maize. Yeah, so farming in, in this area, there is very, very little livestock. Um, historically, there used to be a few dairy herds, but one by one, they've gone out to milk production. So it really is just a straight arable area, which does make us quite different. Um, yeah, I'd like to think it is innovative, of how we're trying to keep animals an outdoor system, but equally playing to the strengths of the light land and the outwintering, which for a lot of farms, particularly further west and probably further north and even south, on heavier soil types, it's just not an option for them. Um, but for us, it is, so we've got to try and play to that strength. And it also allows us to, to rent in a bit of grassland for the summer grazing period, um, because there's not much competition for renting grassland in, uh, being offered some river land. Um, we'll still sort of move animals probably on a weekly basis on those mob grazing areas because they want to see the grass going to seed. Um, they want it to look like a, a, a pretty parkland at the end of the day. And then on some of our own grazing platform, we, we graze that in what would say is more like a dairy type approach. So letting the grass covers get up to sort of 3,000 per hectare, maybe up to three and a half and then trying to clear it down to 1500 each time we graze in and in an ideal world no more than a couple of days in each paddock um, most of the paddocks we've set up on the arable block we take an arable field which say on average is say a, a 10 hectare field we'll put a water trough bang in the center of the field and then put two dividing wires up as a cross over the top of the water trough and then we'll group sizes we'll sort of depend on on the grazing platform itself so yeah on the on the yearlings we're probably running at five five animals per hectare 
as an overall on the on the grazing platform so that you can get in graze a paddock in a day maybe two and then on to the next paddock we are on dairy cross angus uh, calves so we have an interest in a, a dairy herd that's based up in scotland um so we take all the calves out of the, the dairy units they're reared on milk powder through a rearing unit, sort of specialist built rearing unit. And then they come onto our platform from around four months old. Um, so then we'll keep them through that first summer. They'll be on two kilos of, of sort of creep nuts behind a sheep snacker out at grass. Um, and then we'll run those through till the hopefully finished average finishing age wants to be sub two years 24 months so effectively we ended up with um, a full winter of r1s um a full grazing season sort of as that store period from say 12 months to 18 months old and then from 18 months old we'll start to draft out the biggest animals send those straight in to to slaughter from the paddocks from grass and also make the first draw to start bringing through the finishing shed so the R2s, there's probably only 50% of them that actually make it onto the fodder beat. The other 50% have either already gone to the works or they've gone into the finishing shed. Yeah, so we, we've been Angus um, since 2003. Um, my, my dad had some suckler cows um, initially as a bit of a hobby to graze some of the sort of set aside and the permanent pasture paddocks that we have around the farm. And part of... Our business is producing a lot of carrots, Shantony carrots. So as we came out of the suckler production and went into the crossbred calves, it was the obvious choice to stick with the Angus because of that premium. Um, we do have some Herefords that come through. The dairies do like to put some, um, a limited number of Hereford semen in as markers, just so they know um, on that crossover point between black and black, white replacements. Um, the herds do have quite a lot of sort of black Frisian Jersey cows in there. So as a, as a baby calf and it first hits the ground, it's hard to tell if it's Angus or, or replacement. Um, and the Herefords, they suit the system just as well. Um, if anything, they seem to go a little bit, a little bit taller, a little bit more bony, but then they do fill out. I wouldn't go to market and just buy any calves because we, we see it time and time again that it's that management within the first hour that the calf is born, getting that quality colostrum, um, then being reared for the first day, the first week, the first month. Um, that is what sets the animal up for life. Um, as much as choosing the genetics, obviously has a, a big input, but, um, and the beauty of the setup working with the business partner we have on the dairy, he's got multiple units. So we can actually look using, using sort of the, the, the software we follow grass, you know, animal growth rates with. We can see how each source farm's performance can vary. Same genetics, because he's using the same genetics across all the units. And there was one particular unit that was porous last year. And that was actually the one unit that we have a, a vested interest in. So obviously, yeah, it just shows that that small small differences can make a massive difference to to that to, um, the performance of that animal. Um, so I know that's 
that's a big part of our system that we're running. For us, taking animals out of a grass sort of based dairy system, the cows have already been bred for doing well off forage. So that's half the genetics of, of all the animals that I'm finishing come, obviously come from the mum. So they do well off forage. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, I, I definitely believe in the genetics. Um, so no, again, that's that, that's an important part to work closely with with the dairy because they can set you up with good animals or poor animals. Yeah, to take a byproduct from the dairy and then utilize that to help, as we are a vegetable farm to produce more veg that's got to be a, a, a good message to shout about it's about long-term sustainability um so since the late 70s when the farm got an irrigation license um the farm went from being a traditional dry sandland farm in sort of the way my, my granddad farmed my great granddad it would have been a few sheep a few pigs a few potatoes a few carrots a, a little bit of everything and Funnily enough, they'd farmed that way for, what, hundreds of years. The, the farm then got an irrigation license in the mid-70s. And, yeah, looking at gross margins, so we, we could make more from intensive veg production. So the farm became very intensive. Um, we were irrigating half the farm with an irrigated crop every year. Um, so a massive amount of water we were pumping on. And within a couple of decades, so by the mid nineties, my dad and my uncles were starting to feel they were struggling to get performance out of the arable cropping. The soils were getting very tight. Um, we're using a lot of lime, throwing more and more products, chemicals for at the arable sites, yet performance was going backwards. It was going downhill. So I wouldn't say it was foresight, for us to change to go back into mixed farming, it was desperation. It, if we didn't do that, we'd have gone out of business. So it became an easy decision as a family to put grass back in the rotation. Even if we didn't make anything from the grass, that's better than losing money on growing poor arable crops. So it's all about soil health and having a sustainable system. Um, and, and I'll be the first to say that, that I farm for profit because without profit, you're not a sustainable business. You have to, you have to keep paying the bank manager back. Otherwise he's going to stop the business activities straight away. But equally we've got to do it in a way that we can carry on doing it for years and generations to come. Um, and on our sandlands, because we were so intensive of how we were producing the arable farm, the arable cropping and sand has less reserves built into it. Um, it, it has less, sort of fertility carrying ability, capacity. So we have just seen, I think what probably many other arable farms may be seeing, we saw it sooner because we're on a soil type that has less re uh, resilience to it. And we were super, super intensive. Um, so yeah, it was desperation that drove the change. Um, and in a way I still have to pinch myself as a business that we have moved as far as we have. yeah the veg side is still the biggest part of the business um but the livestock side is catching up um so much so that 
two months ago, we had more cattle sales income than we did veg sales for the month, which was the first time in our history. Um, so it's also about business resilience, um, spreading risk, putting eggs in more baskets. So rather than being solely dependent on, on the veg trades or the cereal trades, or potatoes or the sugar beets, to have um, a diverse portfolio, I guess, of, of enterprises and income. Um, you get some advantages. We've got the arable sort of team and agronomy and that experience for growing the forage crops. So although it's a forage crop, it's still growing in an arable mindset. We still want maximum yield, most cost-effective yield of that product, of that crop. Um, but we've had to learn the livestock skills of how to utilize that crop and how to keep the animals healthy, which I'm probably a little bit flippant with, but on an outdoor system, rotationally grazing, we don't really have to do much better than that. Um, when you look back through of what we've used this last year, it's a couple of bottles of alamycin and a few bottles of metacam. Um, and that's it. Um, we, we have a worming program where we, we check in the feces every, every month. We just don't see a huge amount of burden. Um, we treat the calves with a lot more TLC and they will get some more prescriptive, um, treatments, but strategically prescriptive, i.e. sort of a coxie when they're probably six months old. Um, and it's just a case of using that stockman eye on them because calves can go downhill so quickly. As soon as you start to see the shine go off them, the, the body language just go downhill a little bit. That's, that's when you have to step in very quickly. So we've had to learn all of that livestock skill set. Um, but hopefully that then complements the arable sort of background that we've come from. When, when you've not got any other choice, it's an easy decision. So we could have buried our head in the sand and carried on doing the same thing. And, and we would then just drive ourselves into a black hole, probably borrowing more money to keep ourselves trading to the point where you, you end up having to throw the towel in. Um, so in, in terms of that sense, I don't think it was a big risk. Um, to me, to me, it's quite obvious that mankind, humans can, can meddle with soils too much and we don't understand them. They've evolved over millions of years into a very precious e ecosystem. And we come along and think we can throw a few chemicals and fertilizers on them and, and cheat nature and push production. But we don't know everything. So to go back to the principles of a mixed farming system, it's all but just replicating what nature has done for the last however thousands of years of having sort of the grass, your livestock, um, putting it, uh, putting some nutrition back into the land and then being able to cultivate to produce some, some crops for human consumption. The easiest KPI to look at is, is the ultimate one. It's profitability. Um, and yeah, we've climbed on that over the past 10, 15 years since introducing the livestock into the farm. Um, in terms of individual sort of bits of evidence to say that, um, yeah, if we put a, say, a winter wheat in after a three-year grass lay, we hit an extra ton of hectare of grain. There's so many variations on that, and the weather being the biggest one. Um, we, we can hit 
wheat yields of yeah in we always talk acres still but we we can hit four ton of wheat an acre but then the very next year we can hit a ton and a half if we don't get the rainfall through the spring at the right time our cereal crops are disaster anecdotally i think our soils are far more resilient to the extreme weathers now than they were well than we contract farm on a block which is straight arable farming still. And despite our best efforts to put livestock onto that farm, it's the landlord wants intensive arable production still. And that soil is the first to dry out and crops are the first to drought out. And it's the first to get too wet to get on and do any groundwork or harvesting carrots, which we do through throughout the whole winter. So Farming, it's all very anecdotal because there's so many different variants involved with it. But time and time again, we see that same trend. Um, and as I said before, it's about resilient farming, um, not necessarily just out and out profit this year. It's about resilience so that we can have that profit in the years to come as well. So it is in a balanced ecosystem, environmentally friendly way of producing um, beef. Um, to me, that's the, the, the biggest argument um, on the environmental side is, yeah, I, I don't agree with, with feeding livestock cereals or even soya, which to me is one of the first worst products out there for deforestation across the world and therefore environmental impact to feed soya into a ruminant that then again produces more emissions, that's kind of a double negative. But for me to produce beef off cropping that then assists with human food production, i.e. looking after the soil and, and helping the veg production side, well, that's a balanced ecosystem. And I have, I have some friends that that are very aware of the environment and stare at, yeah, don't eat meat for that very reason. And, and then when I talk and say what we do, you kind of see the penny drop that to be sustainable and produce um, vegetables, we need the livestock. Otherwise we're going to be using far more chemical inputs. And even then that's only short term, I'm sure that long, long term that wouldn't be sustainable at all anyway. So it's probably very simplistic of me to say it, but surely it's all about everything in moderation. And, and as a diet for, for us as humans to be environmentally sort of aware, maybe it should be a little bit of meat to go along with the vegetables, but meat that's produced in a way that has a, a lower carbon footprint and not using feeds that was otherwise have fed humans. I've been lucky enough to come into a family farming business to give me a job I absolutely love and an environment I work in that is second to none. So I want to be able to at least offer the next generation, whether they want to be involved in it or not, but at least give them the option that if they do want to be involved, there's a, um, a reliable business for them to, to take on if they, if they did want to. Um, but equally as farmers, we probably need to be a bit more proactive and proud about how we are farming for the environment as well as 
for profit, as I keep saying. Um, and in terms of, yeah, in terms of employment, um, as a principal, um, I'm very keen to give students, young people, an opportunity. Um, I clearly remember going into my careers advisor at school and telling them that I want to be a farmer. And the look on their face was of disgust. Why farming? Like that, that's, that's kind of a dead end job. Why, why do you want to do that? You could go and be an accountant. You could go and be a vet. You've got good grades. Why a farmer? To which I said, well, that's, that's where my passion lies. It's the environment I want to work in. You can be indoors or outdoors. It's stimulating. It's business. There's so many different skill sets in it. So to me, the biggest um, sort of message I would want to share is, is actually within schools to, to promote farming as a, a highly skilled job. It's, it's not just the, um, yeah, having a pitchfork, bedding cows down, going and hand-picking potatoes, bagging, bagging potatoes. It's, it's all mechanised now. And yes, we don't need degrees to operate machinery, but you've got to be switched on. You've got to know how to maintain them, how to use them. Um, so yeah, we, we need an education workforce coming through. And I think COVID has probably brought that on as a little bit as well. People have reevaluated what they want in their work-life balances, um, even change of careers. So, uh, so yeah, to me, that's a message that, that we need to also uh, try and promote is, is a skilled workforce that we need to, to push the industry forward um, because we do need to push forward. Um, we had a massive increase in productivity post-war but then it's plateaued ever since. Um, so we need to be a bit smarter about how we're farming to increase productivity and reduce food prices um, for a sustainable future yet again. Thanks so much, Mr. Howard, for sharing your time and thoughts with us. Hearing the details of your farm's long history and recent successes has been really enlightening. And if you want to shine a light on your regenerative farming options, visit Hustler Equipment at hustlerequipment.com. And to see all the sustainable and regenerative farming articles in the Feed Grass for Good blog, you can go to hustlerequipment.com FGFG. Finally, if you liked this episode, please smash those five stars and give us a glowing review. It will help other people interested in sustainable and regenerative farming find us. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.